Hi, friends. Welcome back to With Great People, the podcast for high-performance teams. I'm Richard Kasparowski. This is the first episode we've recorded since the COVID-19 outbreak began disrupting our world. Lives are lost. Businesses shut down. Human interactions went from offices, parks, and restaurants to computer screens. All this remoteness is very strange for most of us, but for others, it's business as usual. In this episode, I talk with Malud Saccarelli, an agile leader, founder of Remote Forever Summit, and CEO of Remote Forever. There's hardly a better positioned person to guide us on building and managing remote teams. So I invite you to sit back as Malud shares her thoughts on remote work and distributed teams. To support this podcast, visit my website, kasparowski.com. Our guest today is Malud Saccarelli. Hi, Malud. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty okay. How about you? I am also pretty okay. Will you introduce yourself for our listeners? I am Malud Saccarelli. I'm the founder of Remote Forever and uh, the host of Remote Forever Summit, the first summit that was created to bring remote working into the agile world. This is the first podcast that I'm recording in the COVID-19 era. Oh, wow. Uh, I feel so honored. (laughs) Yeah. And and this was actually a special recording date that we set because of the work that you've been doing for the last many years related to remote work. So what else could you say about that? Okay. So my background is in software development and agile coaching. I discovered agile almost a decade ago and I fell in love with it and I kept educating myself and getting clients and working at many different companies to see how they work. And one of the things that I've been helping many clients do is transform from traditional ways of working, traditional ways of creating businesses, developing businesses, but with a focus on software development. And I've been helping them transform from those traditional ways into modern ways of working, which we call agile as a generic like umbrella term for that thing. And a few years ago, I had a retrospective with myself on a Sunday, sitting in a cafe, sipping my coffee, and I realized that there was not a single team I had been a part of that was not remote in some sense. And I thought, wait a minute, there is that principle in the Agile Manifesto that talks about co-location as a prerequisite to becoming Agile, to having effective communication. And all this work, all these many years I've been doing is helping people collaborate effectively remotely. There is something there. There is a need to change this conception, this perception that people have. So the company that I founded and the conference that I founded was practically to help people who believed in Agile, which I know are many. It's not very hard to fall in love with Agile. Mm -hmm. I wanted to empower them to understand that remote working is not a challenge, but rather the reality of how work is done and to help them understand and learn how to embrace remote working in their agile environments to be more effective. All right. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Up until recently, I would tell people that if they care about some new development, if they're working on something, some new innovation project that's really important to their organization, then you want to have those people (laughs) co-located. Obviously, that's not happening right now. No. Unfortunately, it's been the case for a few years that remote is just part of our reality and it's easier to accept it and work with it rather than resisting it and opposing it. Yeah. 
All right. So this this podcast is about teams. I, I like to ask people about the best team of their life, any kind of team at all, a work team, a non-work team, any group of two or more people who have some alignment on some shared goal. Mm-hmm. What's the best team of your life? The best team of my life. <laughs> it's hard. I've been part of I've been part of quite great teams. I think the first best team that I was a part of was when I was still in school, when I was doing my master's studies. I was voted a president of the International Student Committee. That was like an organization, a volunteer organization of 12 people welcoming international students into the school. And I say it was a great team because, first of all, people weren't paid to contribute to get work done, which means that they were really like intrinsically motivated to, to get that work done. And also because from the outside, it looked like the organization was only creating parties and trips. Whereas what, what was really happening like behind the scene was lots and lots and lots of communication and collaboration and brainstorming. And I developed my character as a leader in, in that group quite a lot. And I saw like practically everyone in that organization continued to become leaders in their, in their own life in one way or another. In my work, I've also been part of great teams. Most of the work teams that I work with, and I call them great, were teams that started from a place of not being able to understand each other, not being able to collaborate together, and then ending up being amazing, fascinating, high-performing, like really, really in sync. And they felt like a family, you know? Oh, I love that. It felt like a family. Okay, pick one of these teams. All right. And take yourself back to it. It sounds like this will be easy for you. You have some really mm-hmm. strong memories and sensations about both of these groups. Mm-hmm. If you could summarize the sensation of being with that group of people, doing that work together, what is one word you could use to summarize that? Love. I think I actually heard it from you when I interviewed you in, in the conference. You said that love is the word that many people say, and it stuck with me because my mother tongue, like I, I am bilingual, but one of my mother tongues is Farsi. And in Farsi, there are quite a few words to describe love. And when I first thought about the word love in English, it comes with like and dislike and hate, you know, like that is the category of words that you put together as this sensation or the opposite of it. Whereas in Farsi, like the culture and the language that I came from, There was a huge difference between a romantic love and a love that you feel for a team and the love that you feel for a family member and the love that you feel for God. So to me, like that word was like, wow, it actually embodies all of those concepts when you work in in a great team. You feel all kinds of love for the people that you work with. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And, and, I, and I giggled when you said love, because so often I, I talk to people who work in organizations where the word is actually not allowed, right? And, yeah. and I joke about this, especially when I'm, when I'm with people around New York City and they're working in big finance companies. And they, they actually tell me, like, we're not allowed to sit, use that word at work. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I can understand, like, why it wouldn't be allowed, especially in the U.S. But at least I live in Sweden now and we can say anything. You're right. You're right. My first language is English, and the word love means a lot of different things. When I share this with people, I go through this extra explanation that I don't mean romantic love when you're talking about a work team in particular. Yeah. And so it's so interesting that you have 
more nuanced words than I have. Indeed, but it's hard to translate them because they all translate <laughs> to love in English. Yeah. I try to say things like friendship or, or brotherly love or camaraderie, but none sense. of them are quite the same. No, no, indeed. Like being productive together like as a duo or as a trio, it mm -hmm. has a specific word. Yeah, and having unconditional love for a person that is like what we call romantic love in English, that has a different word. But like having unconditional love for your mother is different from having unconditional love for your spouse. So there are two different words that you use for that. I love this. I, 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 love, I love the nuance. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And, and what else do you mean about love with respect to that team or those teams? the safety like the psychological safety to be vulnerable with each other in the environment that you're working in in the group of people like be it, for it to be okay to fail for it to be okay to cry if you need to like you know exercise some other kind of emotion or if somebody has a breakdown and they start like they get angry and they shout like it's okay and they get forgiven when they apologize later the ability to have all kinds of emotions in a team. That's what it comes down to, in my opinion. And I'm not very good with emotions. You're putting me on the spot here. Emotions <laughs> is actually something that I had to learn how to analyze because I grew up as a very, very logical person. The way I grew up, it was not okay to allow emotions to affect your decisions or your behavior. And I, I lived with that up until I was 18 or 19. And I suddenly entered an environment where there were people of all kinds, all kinds of educational backgrounds, people who had not gone to the kind of high IQ school that I went to. Like they were not brainwashed into thinking emotion is some, something that needs to be excluded from life. And only then was I you know, challenged with the idea of feeling emotions as they happen. Like for me, it was totally okay to shut down all your emotions and process them at a time you have time, like two weeks later. So now, now that you're asking me these, like this is a journey that I started practically since I was like 19, 20 up until now. And it's still not very natural for me to feel or to think about feelings. Totally get what you're saying. Um, and I, I, I kind of grew up the same way. You got a, a couple of decades head start on me in, in my emotional oh, wow. development. <laughs> so <Wow>. congratulations. <laughs> well, it wasn't fully accepted by my very rational brain up until I was probably like 27, 28. Mm -hmm. I was still trying to deny it. I was still trying to make the world fit my reality rather than the opposite. <laughs> Yeah. And, okay. And, and, and make the world fit your reality. That's a sort of a theme going back to the idea of the remote teams and, and recognizing that remote teams are actually the mm -hmm. facts yeah, versus the, the thing to fight against. Yeah. That is part of the self-development. I read this internet meme or quotes. I don't know who it is from. I just said it without a mention to who has said it. They said, an intelligent person would want to change the world. A wise person would want to change themselves. Right. And that's very wise. All right. What else about these teams subjectively goes into making them as, as, as great as they were? How, how do you know subjectively that these were great teams? That's a very good question. Well, apart from the emotional part of it, like subjectively, things that you can actually measure. I know that in organizations you say, you know, we can measure productivity. And I think it's extremely difficult to measure productivity. But I think you can measure quality. 
and you can compare quality of the work that is creative compared to what was before the team was high performing or before the team was even there. And there were many things that happened like in those teams. I, I keep like sticking to the school one because I expanded on that a lot more than the work one. So we just go with that. So in, in that group of international students in a school in Sweden, we were like one of the very first generations of international students there. And just to have a president who was not a native Swede was new. So I was the first, you know, foreign for president for that group. And I, I was a person who challenged the status quo quite easily. Like it was it was very natural for me to do that. And one of the things that we did was challenge the idea that the default language of the school was actually Swedish. And we weren't people who could understand Swedish. So we needed to actually translate everything into English for other people to be able to participate and understand. And one of the things that I can compare, like, you know, years later, I can look back at the website of the school and see that every detail is translated into English. And that is a project that we all started. So that lasting impact, that was something that we created. And I said quality subjectively. And when I think about software teams, quality becomes very centric when the team is high performing. It's not anymore an afterthought. It's not like, yeah, we developed code and we just wait until users report bugs and then we fix them. But instead, it becomes very centric. Like, you know, you send your code review to someone and they instantly give you feedback about quality issues. Whereas if you didn't care if the team was not really high performing or was not really connected in that way, the person might just do like a quick review and say, yeah, it, the formatting is fine. Nothing breaks. It compiles. Let's ship it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I, I would stick to quality. Like that is something that I care for a lot. Maybe it's because I was a tester for a while. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a lot of parallels in our lives. I grew up, uh, my, my first jobs were as a tester as well. Yeah, were you also tricked into it? Because I was totally tricked into it. <laughs> I was hired as a developer, and then I was pushed into being the tester. I, I was not tricked into it, but I had a lot of fun with my job. I had, I had this idea that the computer was laughing at me if I wow. did anything repetitive. So I always wrote code and automated things, so the computer oh, wouldn't wow. laugh at me. <laughs> That's a very good one. That's so cute, too. I worked mostly with hardware testing, so it was a little oh, different. Hard, I worked yeah. very, very close to hardware. I had to test the compiler, like seriously. Mm -hmm. I had to learn an operating system that the company I was working at had created precisely <laughs> for their systems, like all the Linux and Windows and all these things that I had learned before was useless. I learned mm -hmm. Solaris and I learned their operating system. Yep. There was something you said. I, I love this idea of quality. Uh, quality becomes centric. It's not an afterthought. You also, you said something else. The work that you did had lasting impact. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I right. think that that is also apparent in many companies that you can see, like those Fortune 500 companies that you see in the same, you know, top list for hundreds of years. There is something about them that is working and it is creating a lasting impact. I am very impressed by a particular company that I read about that's Barbie. And it's, it's a weird example to say, but Barbie is a company that has been profitable for, I don't know, I think it's about 100 years now. I did a case study on that company and I realized like how they have embraced and adapted their, their products to the emerging markets, to the emerging mindset in the societies. 
and it's fascinating like it's a simple simple product like there is nothing to it if you think about it you mean the, the barbie doll yes the barbie yeah. doll it's so weird i, I, I even bought one product. this year as a as a as a silly gift for my wife a, a particular themed barbie they have all these themed barbies now so this was the, my point. The, the frida kahlo barbie <laughs> and in the 60s a person like you know you were not the audience of that company the audience was mm. the parents of 13 year olds mm-hmm. but they have they have understood that the market is changing they have understood that mm-hmm. nowadays grown-ups buy each other this kind of gifts <laughs> to, to, just to make each other happy like, it's yeah. it's very fascinating if you think about the business but there are many businesses that have lasted that long it's just a silly example that's easy to relate to because everyone knows what they are you just yeah. look at lego for example lego is another company that was targeting kids and now they have expanded into organizations like corporations are actually paying those people money to buy those lego bricks that they were once only meant for kids i'd love to see like organizations that create lasting impact or adapt their products and their services to meet the changing environments it's really like coming back to change yourself you know (laughs) don't change the world change yourself that wisdom to change yourself. Um, is there anything anything else objective about these teams that somebody from the outside could observe and maybe measure that made them so great? I think the team itself might appear as a slightly dysfunctional to the outer eye. Because they would argue openly. They would disagree openly. And you might see lots of tension, but also lots of laughter. So it might be confusing for a person to look at the team from the outside or just pop in every once in a while and see their interactions. Mm-hmm. And you see that also in a lot of families, right? Sure. There is love, but there is also dysfunction in every family <laughs> that I know of anyway. But I think I'm answering your subjective and objective questions <laughs> completely backwards. So the audience listening to this, please understand that the first question was subjective and apparently I answered the objective. <laughs> and now we're talking about objective and I'm answering the subjective. But the, the products that they create, the services that they create, if a person looks at it from the outside, I think the word integrity comes to mind. Mm. So you see that the product has integrity and not just in terms of components, like in a technical term, but also in terms of ethics or what they stand for. Like it's very clear that the product is representing the vision of a company that is bigger than just that product. Letting that sink in. I love, love this idea of integrity. The total alignment of all of the pieces, both the, the artifacts that, that, that we're building together and all of us as, as humans. And like you added, it's, and it's bigger than just us or the product we built. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it aligns with everything the organization is about, bigger than us. Maybe it's even, it has integrity, it's integral with some big important virtue <laughs> like love. Yeah, you know, you know, maybe I it's mean, an expression of love. Sound, we're making it sound like the companies working in the defense industry or creating <laughs> weapons can't possibly have good teams, which is totally not true. Good teams can exist in any industry, in any mm-hmm. business, really. But it's, mm-hmm. it's the it's the integrity of like the mission of the company, the mission right. of the business, and the goal that the team is pursuing, and the way that they do it. 
Yeah, I usually use the word alignment for that. And I like this idea, my, my brain is getting adjusted a little bit here, of, of calling it integrity. This, this perfect alignment of everything is, is perfect integrity. Alignment is a good word too. Mm-hmm. How about some behaviors of one or both of these sets of teams? What are some concrete behaviors that, that you engaged in together that led to your successes? Gosh, that's a lot of behaviors because <laughs> I am observant of behaviors and I'm very careful about what is a behavior and what is an interpretation of a behavior. Oh. So let's just visualize it. So I could be seeing someone who is breathing heavily, shaking their head, you know, left or right, nodding up and down and looking frequently at their watch and not knowing like what that means. And I could interpret that observation, that behavior that I'm seeing as, okay, this person is uh, nervous, this person is in a hurry, or maybe this person just really, really needs to go to the bathroom. (laughs) It could be anything. I could see that behavior and interpret it in so many different ways. And the problem is that we often look at some behavior and we jump into interpreting it. And instead of, you know, asking the person, so what does that behavior mean or what is that behavior telling me we say oh are you nervous oh do you need to go out you know Mm -hmm. like we we jump into conclusion and that becomes an interpretation that can cause conflicts so some of the behaviors that i can say i have seen is for example taking long quiet pauses and allowing the other person to finish their thought if you look at it more deeply it could be that you're creating space for all types of thinking, for all types of learning, and for all kinds of communication styles to coexist together. And you're allowing for that to happen. But that is an interpretation that I'm having. The behavior that I have seen is taking long pauses. All right. I love this distinction between the behavior and the interpretation. So taking long pauses and that... Another behavior could be creating information in a transparent way. That is, even in school, like over a decade ago, (laughs) where, you know, cloud-based collaboration tools were not yet a common thing, we made it so easy for people to access information about what was being developed, what was being decided. There was no decision made behind closed doors without the involvement of the people who were impacted by that decision. Like we really embraced the idea of democracy. We were creating a party, like a freaking party for 30 people. And we made sure that all those 30 people, they had their their voices heard. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like we had bigger events for a thousand people. And for those events, of course, you couldn't ask every single individual, but we took a sample and we surveyed them and we talked to them and we made sure that we had everything taken care of. So the next word that comes to my mind is a word that actually defines a very fundament of my personality, and that is inclusion. So I think one of the things that happens in great teams is that one or several people are constantly thinking about inclusion and behaving in a way that allows everyone to exist fully the way that they are. I love that definition of inclusion, allowing everybody to exist fully the way that they are. 
I learn every time I do one of these interviews. That I, that I... It's the same for me. We all learn. <laughs> <laughs> my, my understanding of the word inclusion, we, we just tweaked it a little bit, and I love that. So what was it before? Can I can I ask questions too? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in, in, inclusion has become a, a jargony word if, oh, yeah. for, for, for companies, for human resources departments inside companies. It has superseded the previous jargony word, diversity. And um, somebody, somebody taught me this, and I, I love this distinction between diversity and inclusion that somebody taught me, and it totally relates to the way you're talking about it. Diversity is like inviting a lot of different people to your party. Mm-hmm. And inclusion is making sure everybody has a great time. I like that. Yeah. I, and it's, I, and it's I very intentional. And I'm, I'm reflecting on some of my teams and realizing that I could adjust my behaviors a little bit to make sure more people are included in the things I'm doing or, or subgroups of us are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is another thing that I have learned in my self-development journey because inclusion comes naturally to me. I look around, like there was a person who was a leadership trainer. I took this class with this guy, I think I was 16. And one of the feedbacks that he gave me was, you have like a helicopter vision. You see everyone and you make sure that everyone is included. And then it didn't really speak to me. I was a child, you know, I was just having a good time. I was having fun in that training that was like in outdoors and camping and all of that. But later on, like it came back to me and I realized that it is indeed a person that I am. I, I do do that even without thinking about it. But now I'm becoming more intentional about understanding like who are the individuals, what are their needs? And if the group is very, very big, thinking about the subgroups that exist in, in the community and making sure that their needs are met. Like one of the really weird things that I do as an individual who presents a lot in different conferences in different places is that when I create presentation slides, I have this tiny app that I use to make sure that colorblind people will see the colors fine. I check every single slide to make sure that those people are included. And I started doing this when I learned that a very big portion of the society are colorblind. And I also realized that people don't say that about themselves. They they kind of tend to hide it and cope with it and they don't say it openly. So another thing that I tend to do, or I did that before creating my slides this way, was asking if there was any colorblind person. And I realized people don't say it's me. So I changed my behavior (laughs) and I adapt my own presentations to meet them. So many nuggets of wisdom. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you're very welcome. You see, like the same thing applies for with remote working. Because remote working enables a lot of different kinds of people to be mm. able to contribute. And it also removes lots and lots of fears that people have. A, interesting examples of that is a close friend of mine who is very, very tall. And she had a lot of like self-image issues growing up because she is that tall. Like she had problems finding dates and things like that. 
And a great thing that I have noticed that is happening for her working remotely is that people can't see how tall she is. So they accept her for who she is, you know, the way she talks, the way she thinks and the way she behaves. And she's an amazing person. And her appearance, like her tallness, doesn't strike anyone as the significant thing that she thought she was being judged for. And it has also helped her to understand that about herself, that she's much bigger than her height. So it has helped her grow in her understanding, in her acceptance and self-acceptance as well, which is an amazing thing with remote working. That is very cool. Uh, it's like on, on Zoom, nobody knows how tall you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Another inclusion story, I heard this from a friend working at a very large company, and he's been working remotely for many, many years for this mm-hmm. company. They're, they're, until recently, they were mostly working face-to-face in offices with each other, and he was this person working mm-hmm. remotely, uh, a company based in California. He's here in Boston. He's just working at home. They realized that remote workers were a group of people that weren't experiencing inclusion the same way as in-the-office workers were. And the company started changing their behaviors to make sure that everybody felt included, whether they worked in, in the office or not. Yeah, that's the beauty of a remote-first culture. It is mm-hmm. a culture of inclusion, indeed. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to it, helping all mm-hmm. organizations to to strive for being remote first, even if they do have offices and have remote workers. I really do everything in my power to make sure that every single person in a group that needs to collaborate and that needs to make decisions together is feeling included. Mm-hmm. And that comes in so many different shapes and forms. It's, it's from access to tools. Like some companies think remote working is outsourcing. And oftentimes, uh, companies do not give all sorts of accesses to the offshore consultants or offshore people that are working with them. And that alone creates this barrier. It creates this us versus them feeling that, that repels us from feeling included. And that, that's just something that, that they do out of like concerns for security and privacy and things like that. But that's just there. But if you have the option to give access to the necessary tools to people. I always recommend to do that. And if not, to use alternative ways to make sure that people are involved. There is something I learned from James Priest, the discoverer, I shouldn't say creator, the discoverer of sociocracy. When he talks about uh, one of the patterns in sociocracy about like, that comes with decision-making, And he talks about how people who are impacted by a decision need to be involved in making that decision. And I think even outside of sociocracy way of thinking, it's a really valuable thing to make sure that you have in your teamwork, in your organizations. What other advice do you have for listeners to be able to reproduce this kind of success? That's a very good one. I'm going to give you an example before giving my advice, if that's okay. Yeah. So someone once asked me, how can I make people to turn on their camera when we're having remote meetings? And I said, you can't make people do anything. They need to want to do that. And he said, so how can I make them want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And that, that question sent me off for a few minutes. And then I thought, empathy. They need to empathize with you. They need to understand how their lack of being on camera makes you feel. And this is just an example. So please 
those of you listening to this, don't get fixated on the idea of camera. This, this applies to anything. How can I make them do X? What you need to do is to help them understand what that X, that behavior, or how that behavior is impacting you. Okay. And the really silly way that I explained to this camera person was that I had my camera on and they had their camera off. And they said, okay, so I'm going to show you on camera how your behavior is impacting me. And they, they were intrigued. So I turned my head so they could see the back of my head. And mm-hmm. I kept talking to them so they could hear me fine, but they couldn't see my face. And I said, that is how it is impacting me. So it was innocent. It was not really like intrusive and harsh, but it, I know it sounds and feels a little like taking revenge, but <laughs> in the context, like I made sure that we were feeling psychologically safe together before like making that experiment. But what it did to that person is that it, it shows them the impact of them not being on camera has on me, which is, I really, really want to see your face and I can't. Yeah. And it, it applies to everything. So if your company is co-located and you have satellite people sitting remotely and you're, you're the remote person and you're thinking, how can I make them understand that I don't feel included? Like they invite me and I'm always there on that TV in that room. They see me, but I don't feel included. How can I make them understand it? Mm-hmm. You can experiment very lightly. You can say, you know, guys, let's do this half an hour meeting fully distributed. Let's all sit at our own computers and dial into the meeting so that we can all experience the idea of participating in the meeting through the square that is our screens and through the camera and microphone that that is there. And once they experience that, it opens up for having constructive conversations around it. Mm -hmm. So small, safe experiments to open up for the idea of empathizing with each other and being able to communicate more effectively about whatever is happening in your organization. Inclusion requires high degrees of empathy. Really cool. Uh, and I, I love it. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything else you want to share with listeners? Anything at all? I want to touch on the idea of responsibility that comes with empathy. In these hard times that we're living in, in the middle of a pandemic, there is a lot of tension, there is a lot of stress, there is there is a lot of mixed emotions. Some people might be like I was when I was younger and post-process their emotions. So mm-hmm. in the moment, you might see them smiling and happy and productive and not really understanding how come they don't feel as bad as you do or how come they don't feel as good as you do. And I think one of the most important things that we need to do right now is to make it okay for people to feel however they are feeling because people go through this crisis differently and it's not a crisis that any of us have experienced before. It's new to all of us. It's some levels of grief, some levels of basically overcoming your fears So I want to just encourage people to apply a little extra empathy and to not assume that people are not doing different things because they are irresponsible. They are doing what is best for them first. And in the second degree, they're going to contribute as well as they can to the work, to the relationship, to whatever it is that you expect of them. 
So don't go around and blame people and shame people into believing that whatever they're feeling or whatever they're doing is wrong and try to just understand that just as much as you feel responsible, they do too. All right. And if listeners would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? You can follow me on social media. I go with at Remote Forever on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And on LinkedIn, I usually post as myself. So Malut Sicarelli is my profile. You can easily find me. I'm one of the very few Maluts in the world who is a woman. Oh. The majority <laughs> of Maluts in the world are actually dudes. <laughs> and you can also subscribe to my newsletter on my website, remoteforever.com. And if you do fancy, and if you're interested in learning about how to bring remote working into the agile world, you can also participate in my summit where Richard has spoken twice already and his sessions are loved by people. And that summit is free for everybody to attend and you can find more information on at remoteforeversummit.com. Malud Sekarelli, thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been a, a great pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much, Richard Kasparovsky. Hi, friends. Thanks again for listening. And remember, to support this podcast, visit my website, kasparovsky.com. <laughs>